Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody out there, and may I thank you once again for joining my brother and I for what is going to be a fantastic podcast. My name is W.G. <laughs> my name is W.J., not W.G., W.J. Sheehan, and I am the author of a series of books entitled Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available at Amazon in paperback and ebook. So do take advantage of that. And if you're an audio buff, you can get volumes one through seven at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. And people are buying them like hotcakes. And now, without any further delay, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. How about you, Bill? Fantastic, man. I had For a, a minute of- there, I thought you were changing your name. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was W.G., what would the middle name be? Uh, Geraldo. <laughs> Does that start with a G? Yeah, it certainly does. William Geraldo Sheehan. <laughs> How about Giuseppe? <laughs> yeah, we can come up with a couple of good ones for that. You know? I like Giuseppe. Hey, uh, hey. Hey. I like Giuseppe, too. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I, when I hear the name Giuseppe, I think of the old city organ grinders with the little monkey. Oh, yeah. What a, what a life that must have been back then, you know, with all this... Can you imagine seeing organ grinders in the city today walking around, pumping the organ and making the music and no. selling peanuts? And, and, uh, and like some scrappy monkey climbing around? No. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. So no. uh, what's going on over there in a land of uh, cryptids and other oddities? Well, first off, on cue, the squadron of Apache helicopters are coming over. No kidding. Even though we're at a different time of day today, so it's, I don't it, know if you can hear them, but that's the sound of freedom. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's it like every incredible. time every we sit time down we to go at up. it, yeah, uh, the Apaches are coming over, you know? Yeah, and I live like 20 miles from the airport, so it's not like I live next door to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you're anyway. Def- <laughs> you're definitely in the route. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of scrappy monkeys, like the organ <laughs> grinder, we're going to talk about the Hibagon. Wow. Spell that know? for me. H-I-B-A-G-O-N. Hibagon. Do you know the Hibagon? I have never heard of it. Ah, so the Hibagon comes to us. The tip on the Hibagon comes to us from one of our many listeners, 
our beat reporters out there. And uh, it came from uh, uh, one of our listeners in Japan. And the Hibagon apparently is Japan's version of the Bigfoot. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, they've been seeing him since back in the 70s. And um, the only thing is, he's kind of like a runty Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> He's about five feet tall, but in fact, he has pretty big feet for some something five feet tall. Like they're about 10 inches long and six inches wide. The yeah, prince. That's, yeah, that's a big hoof. Yeah. And then he's got like other uh, features and characteristics that are similar to our own Sasquatch in that, you know, it doesn't have a fear of people. It's um, very stealthy. It doesn't, you know, it's not known to make any noise around people, you know, like it doesn't howl at you when it sees you or anything like that, like a monkey or ape might. Uh-huh. And then, of course, it's got, as you would say, Bill, the stink. <laughs> it's quite a smelly beast as well. Yeah, when it's the, around. the stank follows him the everywhere. Stank. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and it's uh, reddish-brown, generally said to be reddish-brown or black. And sometimes uh, people say that it has a white patch of hair on its chest or its arms. Well, that's interesting. Which is pretty interesting, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But a lot different than, you know, the 10-foot-tall beast that we're often talking about here uh, in North America. Well, you know, it does fit the bill, though, with the... uh that reddish brown, that auburn color. Yeah. And then these wide, uh, evidently flat feet. Exactly. Uh, for stomping around, you know. Uh, I liked what uh, Dr. Meldrum, you know, whenever you listen to Dr. Meldrum, it's always educational. Yeah. And he, t- he talks about how the uh, flat foot in these creatures was developed uh, to support such mass. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, print casts uh, that come in, it shows how the flat foot or a foot without an arch, as you step or the foot kind of moves forward in the act of stepping, it pushes some soil back. Because uh, think of like a lever or, or mm-hmm. like a, a foot-long piece of plywood rocking back and forth. Uh, without the arch, the front as it moves and it takes the step, it moves soil back into like midfoot. Oh, okay. It's kind of it's it's interesting, you know, the uh dynamics of a flat foot on uh on loose soil. Very cool, very yep. cool. Yep. So this Hibagon creature gets its name from uh, a mountain range uh that's outside of uh Hiroshima or Hiroshima, depending mm-hmm. on how you pronounce it, called the Hibayama Mountain Range. Huh. And so they call it the Hibagon. Wow. Yeah. And one of the the sightings that's, uh, you know, pretty uh, famous, well, some of the first sightings started in early 1970, at least the documented sightings. And then um, this this one that was first reported was from a group of elementary school students that were out picking wild mushrooms in the forest there by uh, Mount Hibba. And they were terrified to come across an ape-like creature crashing through the brush nearby, but, you know, walking upright. Wow. 
pretty wild, right? Yeah, and that's another similarity right there, right? Yeah, that's right. crashing. The oh, crashing. Yeah, crashing, the crashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then that same year, uh, later on that year, in July 1970, a similar creature was spotted by a utilities truck driver. And this driver reported seeing a gorilla-like creature walking on two legs come across a field near a dam, run across the road right in front of him, and disappear into the forest. Wow. You know, what do you make of that crashing through the forest? To me, it's like an intimidation thing. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be. I mean, the only other way or one of the other ways, reasons for doing it would be if it was running away from something and it doesn't really make sense that it's running away from something. Yeah, yeah. I always thought with how stealthy they are that when they start crashing and thrashing, they're kind of letting you know, like, something. Like, I'm unhappy with you being here or... Warning, here I come. Exactly. Well, that's one of the general theories, right, is that they're knocking trees over nearby and stuff like that to kind of intimidate you and warn you to get out of their neighborhood, so to speak. A sign of strength, like, you know. Exactly, exactly. And then several days after this utility worker who saw uh, uh, the Hibagon, on July 23rd, again in 1970, um, it, it, this creature came out of the brush and long grass in front of a farmer who described the creature as being tall as an average man, covered in black hair, and having a grotesque face with piercing, intelligent eyes. Hmm. So that's also, we hear that sometimes, right, in the uh, Sasquatch and Bigfoot sightings, that it has kind of like these piercing, dark eyes. Yeah, you know. Kind of looking into you. Yeah, you can't, you know, when you don't have anything to look at, color, the the whites of the eyes, you know, et cetera, yeah. it is intimidating. You know, it's kind of like, what the, you can't even tell if it's, it always looks like it's staring at you, right? Yep, absolutely. Incredible. And then uh, it was also sighting, the Hibagon was sighted walking through a rice paddy in the town of Sejo around this same time. And then in December of that same year, 1970, uh, the tracks of the creature were were found in the snow at Mount Hibba. Wow. So all of these communities are, are, are near to Hiroshima? Yeah, they're outside kind of a, like northwest of Hiroshima. Okay. Yeah. I wonder. So. But that's, that's a pretty bizarre thing, you know, that... Uh, and nothing beforehand, uh, like everything, like seemed to develop around a certain point in time, or that's, that we know. That's of. where they started, and then they went into the eighties. But like, I don't know of any ancient sightings. But one of the tough things when you're researching uh, stuff in Japan, like everything's in Japanese, right? You know. Yeah. No surprise. And my Japanese is a little weak. <laughs> Especially, my, my, oh, my Japanese is excellent. I just can't read Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tomo arigashimo. <laughs> um, but but um, so, so I'm sure there were some sightings back in time. You know, I, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I would guess that there were. And anyway, so these sightings continued uh, to be more prevalent, and area residents got kind of pretty upset about it. And that the the local uh, 
uh, County, that's known as Sejo Shabara, set up a department to deal specifically with the Hibagon. So huh. they were documenting the eyewitness accounts, trying to get to the bottom of, uh, you know, the stories. And then they were sending out patrols to investigate and look for the creature. And in fact, uh, Kobe University uh, did a full investigation of the area in 1972 to try to find a creature or evidence of the creature. And uh, they and the police made a lot of plaster casts of some tracks that were, you know, believed to be made by the creature. Now, that is really interesting. Yeah. You know, once you get the uh, public uh, involved, that lends a lot of credence uh, to their belief that the testimonials that were coming forth were true. And uh, this wasn't just, you know, a shot in the dark kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is really interesting. And then in August 1974, so in 72, 73, 74, there's a significant spike in uh, sightings and reports of the creature. And August 15th, 1974, a motorist saw this large creature walking near the road, actually on four legs. But when the creature sensed the approaching vehicle, it stood up on two legs and walked along on two legs and then walked across the road road in front of the car and the driver this driver actually now this is back in 1974 they stopped their car and they snapped a photo of the creature that was trying to hide itself behind a uh, tree now the photo like many of the photos we took bill back in 1974 is pretty grainy and tough to see what's going on there but i'll i'll put the picture up on our website uh bigfoottterrorinthewoods.com yeah, you know, the graininess uh, doesn't bother me. I, I've never been one of those people. Of course, we all wish we could see everything with total clarity. Yeah. Uh, but you know my position on that. As far as a lot of people are concerned, if it's clear, they did something to it. If it's grainy, why can't it be clear? You know, there's yeah. no there's no satisfying. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and then uh, in 1980, they, there's a report of one that was seen running across a river with a bounding gait, they wrote, and this comes from uh, Japan outside, so outside magazine Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, there, it was near a town of Yamano, and it became known as the Yamagon. So same kind of creature, but different different name related to that region. Now, do we know uh, this, uh, what was this place, Yamoto? No, Yamano. Yamano. Do we yeah. know... Uh, what proximity Yamato had to the... Uh, no, I have to look that up. I didn't look that up compared to uh, Hiroshima. Yeah, and I, I'm just wondering if they were traveling or... Uh, you know, obviously, if there's one, there's got to be more than one. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. you know, interesting, though, how... Uh, uh, you know, I don't know the habits of the Japanese people. Uh, I don't know if people are going out mountain climbing on Hiroshima. I really don't know the lay of the land over there at all. It's it's very rural, you know, right. contrary to what folks generally believe, you know, Americans that think of Japan, think of Tokyo. Uh, but it's a it's a very large country. Yeah. And uh, um, it's very uh, rural, you know, a lot of trees and woods and natural settings. And, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, my experience in Japan is the Japanese folks love to get out into the country, you know. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Get out you know. of the cities, yeah. So so there's some explanations in uh, Japan outside as to what the what these folks could have been seeing. So uh, I want to talk about that a little bit, right? There's always the uh, the so-called explanation other than a Sasquatch-like creature. And one of them, of course, Bill, is what kind of creature? Oh, well, some type of shapeshifter. No, no. What's the what's the naysayer's explanation? A bear, of course. Oh, 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 oh. how Asiatic can I forget bear. the bear? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and apparently there have been some bears that escaped from zoos and wildlife refuge. And this Asiatic bear, I looked it up, it looks like a jumbo black bear. So, like, I would say, no, you know, yeah. you're not going to mistake a bear for a Sasquatch-like creature. And then another explanation, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but it's called a makake, M-A-C-A-Q-U-E. And uh, I looked this up because I never heard of it before, but it's like a monkey. And I don't mean like a gorilla, but more like a monkey. And it's two or three feet tall, and it has this really long tail. You know, so again, I don't think you'd miss this big tail on the creature. Like, nobody reported that. Yeah. And then uh, this other thing called a yajin, which uh, I couldn't really find a good explanation of, but I think it's like a feral mountain man or something like that up in the up in the Japanese uh, uh, wilderness. So we've we've heard explanations like that as well for Sasquatch, right? Some type of wild man of sorts. Yeah, well, a lot of people call it the wild man because they don't know how to describe it. They see something on two feet. It's got a face, a nose, ears, hands. Yeah. And they, they don't know what to think of it. So long before there was a term Bigfoot, it was the hairy man, the ancient ones, you know, all of this terminology uh, associated. I mean, we that was a United States coined phrase, the Bigfoot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but you yeah, go and around. Then I guess there was a movie made about this in 2005, which I got to look it up. It's called Dear Hinnegan. And, uh, you know, Hinnegan is another name for Hibagon, you know, so they call it Hinnegan or Hibagon. And it was a movie made, uh, fictional, uh, uh, based on a novel uh, by uh, someone named Kiyoshi Shigamatsu. Uh-huh. And uh, it was about the whole Hibagon disturbance. So I got to look that up and see if we can get one with uh, English subtitles. Yeah, and I heard there was a second, like a remake of that movie, uh, translated into English uh, called Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> <laughs> Kev, Kev, hold on just for a second. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to tell my landscaper to stay away from the window. <laughs> You're right. Your Japanese is quite strong. <laughs> I learned that from old war movies. <laughs> Kev, do you, re- do you remember Pat, uh, our sister Pat, uh, studied German? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we used to watch the old war movies, right? And these yeah. people would be shouting things in German and Japanese. You know you know how they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we called her Trish. Trish, Trish used to say... Uh, He's not saying anything. <laughs> or, or you know, he just told the other guy to give him a piece of bazooka or something. <laughs> you know, so we're, 
we're thinking, you know, they're all combat ready and they're, you know, the movie's uh, legit. But even then they were uh, uh, joking around, you know, during the making of the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's funny, you know, we, we're getting a little goofy here and I'll wrap it up on the goofy side as well because it's my nature. But as I was looking at this and I was thinking, OK, we got this monster around Hiroshima and I'm like, oh, who does that remind me of? But... Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started reading about uh, uh, the origin of Godzilla, which is pretty interesting, actually. And it was a combination of two Japanese words. The first one is gorilla, right? Which is kind of interesting in our uh, Bigfoot studies. And Uh whale, because, um, you know, it was described as Godzilla was described early on as a cross between a gorilla and a whale. Due to a combination of its size and power and its aquatic origin. You know, if you remember in the movies, it was awakened from under the ocean, right? Uh-huh, Typically uh-huh. by uh, the nuclear bomb and nuclear bombing and stuff like that and nuclear accidents. Wow. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that is funny. I thought uh, for some, when you started to say that, I thought that the Godzilla was like a great lizard or something like that. I had heard that too, but uh, when I read it, it's uh, the combination of Japanese words, which are Gorira, G-O-R-I-R-A, mm-hmm. and Kujira. And the uh, first one means gorilla, and the second one means whale. Wow, that is yeah. interesting. And also, hey, listen, if any of our Japanese listeners out there uh, want to chime in and uh, give us any additional information on this uh, creature, please do so, because we're all about the uh, information. We got reporters all over the globe uh, chiming in with us and uh, sending us data and videos and all kinds of things come our way. So don't yeah, be shy. 100%. And thank you again to the gentleman uh, for sending in this tip to look into the Hinagon or Hibagon. Depending on its name, from Japan, it's pretty interesting. Fantastic! Wow, so that was excellent work, Kev, and uh, nice follow-up to a good tip uh, yeah, from all, yeah. from all listeners. You know. So what uh, do you got today, Bill? Well, I'm I'm taking us back to the beginning today, Kev, and the folks. I I told my brother I've been avoiding this story since we started the podcast because it's lengthy, and I was uncertain how it would fit in reading it. Uh, in the context of our uh, podcast. But today, uh, I'm going to have at it. And uh, this is quite possibly one of the most incredible, uh, detailed uh, accounts that you'll ever hear. And uh, let's have at it. Pat Sullivan and Ardo Raikkonen first made their acquaintance during a boot camp stint at Paris Island. They had both set their minds on joining the Marine Corps in 79, and from here on out, the story will move forward from Patrick's recollection of the events that befell the two of them. I already told you, Bill, that Artie and I met during boot camp. Artie's real name is Arto, which he told me means bear man in Finnish. I thought it rather remarkable that his entire family was of pure Finnish heritage. All of his family had migrated to the United States in the late 1800s, 
and all lived together in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in Alger County. During boot camp, Artie and I hit it off well. Whenever we could get a moment to sit and talk, we did, and over time I learned that he and I had quite a lot in common. The two of us shared a great love for the outdoors. We both fished, both liked to shoot. However, he was a hunter, and I had never hunted per se, preferring to spend my time shooting sporting clays. During this time in the service, we agreed to visit each other on our home turfs after the military gig was done. In the summer of 85, I packed up my truck and headed to Artie's house in Michigan. I had made a point to pack my 12-gauge semi-auto Beretta, which Artie had advised would be needed for protection. When I asked him what we would be protecting ourselves from, he said that bears were the primary problem. I thought that was fair enough, though I wondered what else may be living there. I spent two days cruising up into his neck of the woods, and when I started getting close, everything was all woods. To me, this place was like a primeval forest. I mean, there were only gravel and dirt roads surrounded by thick, predominantly pine forests, and I could only occasionally catch sight of a house or a building. After having been turned around numerous times, I finally found their hacienda. It was quite the spread, consisting of one large house and a smaller one, both surrounded by a number of barns and outbuildings. I pulled into the driveway and hit the horn. Suddenly, it was as if the middle, I was in the middle of a family reunion. People, both young and old, were springing out from every which way. They were greeting me as if I was the prodigal son returning home, and I thought to myself, this was going to be a great time. After the initial meet and greet, I was given the nickel tour of the homestead. One of the barns was like a machine or a blacksmith shop. And these dudes had everything. Apparently, great-grandpa made a lot of the metal tools and goods, both for himself and the surrounding residents, back in the day. Another barn was loaded with professional lumberyard and milling equipment. As it turns out, his family had harvested much, much, much of the lumber that their home and the homes of many other families in the area were made out of. These folks were made from the real stock. They knew what to do and how to do it, and they were proud of it. As the day continued into night, Artie shared the itinerary for the next nine days. His plan was for us to first tour around and see the surrounding sites, followed by some camping, hiking, fishing, in the truest wilderness style, which all sounded great to me. After dinner had been prepared and eaten, which, by the way, was served up in true Thanksgiving style, his father had taken me into the den to peruse the family's gun collection. They had three gun cabinets lining the room's wall. Each cabinet had been handcrafted as the collection grew, and all their wood had aged differently, one looking more beautiful than the next. They had 47 rifles and shotguns, and the drawers beneath the cabinets were stocked with handguns. To tell you the truth, I had never seen so many guns before this, but these were so fine that they could be in a museum collection. To top it all off, the family knew everything about each gun, and I do mean everything. We spent two hours just in front of the gun cabinets talking. 
I was receiving an education in each firearm's history, who made them, the country and the country they came from. It was at this time that Artie pulled out a large handgun, saying, allow me to introduce you to Harry. It was a forty-four caliber that he had bought after seeing Clint Eastwood's detective exploits in Dirty Harry. That sucker was a hand cannon, not a handgun, and Artie said that in the morning we'd shoot it. This gun was obviously his baby. After the morning's breakfast, we went outside with Harry in hand. We must have shot a hundred rounds. My hands hurt, my shoulders hurt, and my ears were ringing. What a bitch that thing was. We then walked over to one of the buildings which we had not been in yesterday. And as Artie swung the doors open, there she was. A huge beast of a monster truck. Metal flake blue and glistening like a star. Its cap was sprayed with the same color. And on both sides was sprayed the name Littlefoot. In retrospect, the choice of name seemed almost foreboding. It was his version of the original monster truck Bigfoot, made with a 69 Ford F-250 and powered by what he said was a blown 428 engine. He had installed all kinds of blocks and shackles under the body and added everything and anything you could imagine to make the truck reach for the sky. The exhaust system consisted of headers going into cherry bomb mufflers, and when he fired it up in the barn, the timbers shook. The cap was accessed by billet aluminum steps and handrails. This truck was like an adult carnival ride. It was unbelievable. And for the duration of my stay, Littlefoot was going to be our primary mode of transportation. Artie took me everywhere, and I learned everything there was to know about the region. It had been a tremendous logging area, and up until just after World War II, copper mining had also been a large industry. He told me that the local mines had produced more mineral wealth than the California gold rush. He also said that the forests were packed with bears, wolves, moose, deer, gray foxes, red foxes, bobcats, porcupines, hare, rabbits, and everything else you can imagine. No wonder he told me to bring my shotgun. We took a boat ride to see Miner's Castle and the pictured rocks, which were gigantic and beautiful glacial formations. Most of what we were seeing and doing was in an area called Munising. He brought me deep into the areas of the woods. I don't remember if all of the forest was called Hiawatha or just a section of it, but it really doesn't matter. All the woods were the same, vast and dense, without a soul to be seen. There were waterfalls, small and large, located here and there. Artie said something like 2 or 3% of the state's total populace lived in this area, even though it represented a third of the state's total landmass. People were a sparse commodity here. After two days of running around and having a blast, we returned to the Reichenden homestead to prepare for our camping, hiking, and fishing. Out in the barn, Artie took a small stepladder, placed it by the rear of Littlefoot. He opened the tailgate in the cap. He had already hooked, up, hooked us up with everything we'd need in the bed. There was a fire extinguisher, a shovel, chainsaw, first aid kit, and a variety of ropes. 
He said that one of the ropes was to hoist our perishable foods into a tree so that the bears wouldn't get wind of them. He also had two large water jugs, the kind you see at a Little Leaguers game, and a large cooler that was going to be filled with ice only. The rest of our supplies were canned items, some dry goods, as well as a case of Gatorade bottles and more than a few brewskis. On the interior sides of the bed, Artie had built some racks made of wood. On one side, there was a rack for long guns, and on the other side, there was a rack for fishing rods. He had already put a pair of fly rods and several spinning rigs in the truck. He even had electric winches on the front and rear of the truck. Hanging around here was like being in the fire department. Having prepared ourselves with everything humanly imaginable, we took off. Artie said that we were heading into an area near the Ortrain Lake and River. The way in was fairly long, consisting of a decent dirt road which led into some real four-wheeler paths. We had to break out the chainsaw in the truck on two occasions to clear some down timber from the trails, and it was clear to me that no vehicle had been in here for a very long time. The trees we had cleared must have been laying there for decades. The whole traveling ordeal took us about two hours before we finally reached a small, somewhat clear area where we could set up camp. Now, when I say clear, it was more or less an opening in the standing pines with debris scattered everywhere. Audie said that many areas had been replanted after the logging industry had ravaged a fair amount of the forest, which led to a hodgepodge of young and old pines occupying the same space. We set up our camp and dug a fire pit, which really didn't take us much time at all. Once we were done, Artie said that there was still plenty of time left in the day for us to head down to the river and catch some trout, so we grabbed the rods. Artie took Harry, and I grabbed my shotgun before we started walking and walking and walking. Just so you understand, at this stage of my life, a long walk for me was going in and out of the mall with an occasional two-mile bike ride sprinkled in from time to time. My legs were shot, but Artie told me that we were getting close to our destination. He knew this because the forest started to tighten up. There were a lot of smaller trees and bushes as we got closer to the water source, and there was no longer anything resembling a trail. We were looking for breaks in the growth and fighting our way through the bramble when suddenly we broke free of it all and spotted the river. Now, we're not talking about the Colorado here. You could easily walk across this river. In fact, as I looked up and down as far as I could, I could see many of the trees' branches flanking the river's edge were not more than 8 or 10 feet from touching the branches on the other side. Additionally, this river was strewn with wood and rocks. It was relatively calm, flowing water, and as I began to focus on the surface, I could see that there were plenty of trout to be had. We began to fish. The two of us were using terrestrials, which are flies that are tied to look like a variety of insects. Because of the tightly spaced trees, you really couldn't cast much from anywhere in here. We were more or less flipping and mending the flies into position on the surface. We must have been fishing quietly for several hours, enjoying the company of ourselves and the fish. It really was beautiful. 
and I was more relaxed here now than I had been in a very long time. I had almost zoned out of existence when I started to hear loud rock-clacking noise near to me. It sounded as though it had to be very close. I turned my head to look at Artie, and we made eye contact. He shrugged, and we kept fishing. But the sound kept happening. (coughs) Excuse me, i got to get a little drink here, folks. A lot of reading. Okay. As the sound continued, the two of us, uh, uh, let me go back here. I missed the selection. He shrugged, and we kept fishing, and the sound kept happening. It sounded like two rocks cracking together against something being smashed. There was a distinct crunch. It reminded me more of the breaking of a mussel shell than a clam shell, since the mussel shell is much softer and thinner and makes more of a crunching sound when broken. As the sound continued, (coughs) the two of us began to slowly walk towards each other. I was trying to look in the sound's direction, but because of the tightness of the river, with the overhanging branches and the river's curvy nature, it was impossible to see very far. The source of the noise could have been 40 feet away, and we would still be unable to see what was making it. When we got close to each other, we whispered quietly that we might as well have been lip-syncing, or we whispered so quietly that we might as well have been lip-syncing. Artie thought it may have been a moose antlers clacking together, and that the noise may well have been much further away than it sounded. Somewhat reassured, I slowly moved back to the pool I had been fishing in, but this time I made a point to position myself a little closer to the bank and my 12-gauge. Starting to get a little nervous. After a while, the noise stopped, but now I could hear something moving about in the brush, and it started to freak me out. I could see Artie craning his neck as well, fighting to see movement in the trees. We came together again, deciding to wait it out a little bit longer and then split, hoping that whatever was moving around would head on out of here while we waited. As we began fighting (coughs) through this brush on the way out, I was really on edge. I expected something to get to jump on us at any moment. And between holding the gear and shoving trees around, there wouldn't be much time to mount a shot if needed. I started to think of my old friend Dave. I had met Dave, or Fat Dave as I called him, in a parking lot by a lake. I used to go there to study in my car and I would see Dave and some other guys who were always there. They fished with light tackle and worms, catching bluegills and sunfish. While getting out of the car to stretch my legs and talk to them one day, I found that he was from Florida. I could see a large scar circumventing almost his entire shoulder. I happened to be studying for the medical field, so I asked him what type of surgery he had had. He told me that while on tour in Vietnam, he was on sentry duty walking back and forth on the camp's perimeter. He and another GI would walk in half circles, a half circle, and meet again in the middle, going back and forth over and over again. As he was walking, he heard a twig snap, and as quickly as he turned, some 
Viet Cong already had a bayonet buried in his shoulder. As he tried to move, the Viet Cong kept forcing the blade around him. He had been falling to the ground when instinctively he mustered up his M16 with his one good arm and emptied the entire clip into this creep, killing him. Anyway, I felt the same way right now. All the way back to camp, I couldn't shake an eerie feeling out of my spine, and the forest was deathly quiet. You could barely hear us walking, let alone anything else. Finally, we reached the camp, and I began to make a fire while Artie stepped behind some trees to take care of business. A few moments later, I heard a startled shout. What the hell is that? I walked over to see. He stood there looking at a large snake on the ground, which had knots tied on both ends of its body. It looked like a snake dumbbell, but it was still alive. There was absolutely no way these two knots were tied by the snake writhing around on its own. They were as tight as a rope knot. Taking into account the shortening of the knots, the snake must have been six feet long or better. We couldn't help but wonder who or what might have been in our camp while we were gone. The entire thing was mind-blowing. Artie took the snake, flung it into the woods, saying that it would make a good meal for something. Now, maybe it's because I'm somewhat of a city boy, but I couldn't see how Artie could be so stone-cold and unmoving about all of this. After spending a night around the campfire, bullshitting about everything and anything under the sun... We stoked a fire one last time and crawled into the tent. I had my semi-automatic laying by my side and Artie had Harry next to his head. Artie was snoring, but I couldn't sleep a wink. I was too busy thinking about what had happened during the day. Sometime during the night, I started to hear some grunting or grumbling sounds outside the tent. It was hard to tell if they were near or far until a large shadow was cast between our tent and the fire. After a few moments, the shadow had completely darkened our tent's interior, followed by a large, deep growl. With this noise, the top of the tent started to move downward. Artie stopped snoring. With my eyes fixed on the shadow, I grabbed my gun, and before I could even think about shooting it, Artie sat up and squeezed off three successive rounds right through the tent. The flash and concussion were unbelievable, and the smell of gunpowder and smoke filled the confines of the tent. Whatever this was let out a scream that I can only describe as being that of a T-Rex, and it was so loud that it shook me. The side of the tent was burning, and the shadow had vanished. Whatever this was sounded like it was running away, screaming and bellowing as it did so. I unzipped the tent and burst out with my gun. There was no way I was going to die without a fight. Artie leapt up, be out, leapt out behind me, and the two of us stood there, heads moving right and left, looking and listening. This beast, whatever it was, was still screaming off in the distance. I was sure that Artie had nailed this sucker with three forty-four caliber bullets at point-blank range. If it was a black bear, it would have dropped where it stood, but it didn't. It ran away. I asked Artie what the hell could limp, let alone run away, with three forty-four slugs in it. 
His answer was that bears can be tough mothers to take down. Now, I had been thinking of doing exactly what he did. I was going to shoot, too, but at the moment, I had thought about it being some loser dude in the woods playing a really bad and possibly deadly prank. Flashlights in hand, we started looking around for blood, but we found nothing. And on the ground, it was so hard that we couldn't even see any prints, not even those of our own boots. Beyond the glow of the fire, our surroundings were as black as black could be. It was extremely unnerving, to say the least. We got the fire going hot and heavy and stayed up the rest of the night. At this point, I was ready to call it quits, but I didn't want Audie to think that I didn't have any balls, shall we say. I was a city slicker. We were supposed to have... uh, I don't want to read this because it's a little... uh, (laughs) We were supposed to be. <laughs> no, let's, let's not change the rating of the podcast today. Yeah, yeah. We were supposed to be, uh, how we say, tough guys. According to our game plan, we had three days left. So in the morning, Artie seemingly having brushed off everything that happened during the night, he suggested that we head over by the lake today. So we grabbed our spinning rods and our guns and headed off to the closest side of the lake. This time, his direction took us through a marginally more open tract of wood until we got nearer to the lake. Then the undergrowth thickened up like it had by the river. At any rate, we positioned ourselves along the lake's edge and started to throw some poppers and spinners, getting into some fairly decent action quickly. The sun was out in the lake, and it was nice to be out from under the canopy of the pines. While we were fishing, I noticed something large and dark peering in and out of the bushes along the far side of the lake, first in one place and then in another. Every time it appeared, I pointed in its direction, asking Artie to look. Despite of my prompting, he saw nothing, but I definitely saw something that was alive and moving, and I couldn't get my mind uh, off of the campsite incident last night. We were fishing for about six hours or so, taking a few food and drink breaks in between, when Artie said that we should head back and maybe do a little varmint hunting before sunset. It sounded like a good idea, and we began the long walk back. By the time we got back to the vicinity of the camp, we had been gone for eight or nine hours. As the camp came into view ahead of us, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. The entire campsite, including the truck, had been ransacked. There were things thrown in the trees. Our cooler was completely flattened on the ground. It looked as though a steamroller ran over it. Cosmetically speaking, the truck was in ruins. The cap looked like a tree had fallen on it, and both of the side windows were blown out. The cab had been smashed down so severely that we could not open the driver's door and there was no evidence of a log or anything that would have or could have been used to do that degree of damage. The tailgate was partially torn from its hinges and bent under the rear bumper. The front winch was torn completely away from the truck. Nine-sixteenths bolts and washers ripped clearly out of the steel, and the other winch had all of the cable pulled out of it and it was completely detached from the housing. 
Both of the aluminum steps were torn off and we were only able to find one of them. Even then, it was in a mangled state. Thank God the cab had not been opened. The front of the hood from the grill inward looked like it was hit with three or four blows from a 12-inch wide tree trunk. I say this because I have no other way to describe what we were looking at. And having said as much, there was not a single indicator such as bark, chips, or even any marks on the vehicle, which would have shown us that part of a tree had actually been used to wreak the destruction. There were no small dents in the truck, just large, long, and wide blows to the metalwork. What bothered me most of all was the type of power that would be needed to flatten the large igloo cooler. And the fact that large bolts had been torn away from the truck, leaving a reverse dimple where they had been in the steel. It was insane. Whatever did this was not an individual or a group of individuals. No man could have done this. We said nothing to each other. There was nothing to say. We simply stood there aghast. I jumped up into the bed of the truck and tried to push up on the broken cap in an effort to open things back up a little bit. I was forcing my back against the broken roof, and as I worked my way into position, I noticed something very odd. Caught in the very end of one of the cracks in the fiberglass were several long, dark-colored hairs. It looked as though something with hair had lost a few while, while its body slid or dragged off the roof. I showed them to Artie, and he said that he couldn't have been black. It couldn't have been black bear fur. These strands were like eight or ten inches in length, which was way too long. We gathered up all the stuff we could and shoved it up under the remnants of the cap into the bed. We grabbed the tailgate, flexed it back and forth until we could twist it up into the bed. When we came into the camp, everything in the truck had been neatly organized, and as we were now about to leave, it looked like an open trash can. Artie climbed up into the cab from the passenger side, which was not an easy task without the step, and started brushing the shattered glass off the seat and everywhere else. The truck started right up, and he let it run. I guess about an hour had gone by since we came back to the camp, and it was time to get the heck out of here. It was a long ride in, and it would be a longer ride out. As we left, I couldn't help feeling really bad for Artie in a number of ways. After all, I came on his invitation, and now his truck was in ruins, and we were leaving with our tails between our legs. What would his family think? What would anyone think? Hold on, folks. When we finally got clear of the woods... We started heading down the road. At some point, we saw a cop coming the other way, and Artie waved him down. As he stopped, I couldn't see him because of the truck's height and the fact that Artie was on, or the cop was on Artie's side. I heard him ask Artie what happened. Artie shut the truck down, and as I jumped out, he followed. We spent about 45 minutes walking around the truck and telling the officer our tale. 
He wrote up an incident report, gave us a copy, saying that there is stuff in these woods that we don't know anything about. Later on, as we entered Artie's property, everyone came out to see the truck and talk to us about our ordeal. It was at dinner that evening that his father began telling us about what his father had said to him. He told us that the loggers and miners had spun many a yarn about giant hairy creatures that they had seen in the timber. He said his father told them that they would mess around and damage their equipment after the workers had left for the day. They would come back the next morning and find machinery bent and broken. He said this was a regular happening for the workers and that the men would speak of things being thrown into the camp without being able to see who or what threw them. At any rate, that's my story. Audie and I still speak to this day. He actually rebuilt Littlefoot, and Audie's father took the hairs that we retrieved and framed them in the den for the family posterity. I haven't been back to visit Artie since. What do you think of that, Kev? Wow. Tremendous detail in that account. and uh, But, I mean, could you imagine how frightening that would be to come across? I mean, uh, even coming across a snake, a big giant snake that's tied up in knots, like that, that's pretty creepy. And then coming back to camp and seeing, you know, your... Your uh, little foot monster truck uh, ripped to shreds. You know, that's just yep. like what the heck. You know, certainly didn't sound like it was a uh, any type of humans uh, humans doings. You know, like vandalism or something. Too much power. You think about this, Kev, and if you believe this was a Bigfoot, and I do. You know, we've all stood around. Uh, particularly you and I, the old F-250s, in the era of the monster truck, right? Remember them all driving around? Yeah. Uh, And we used to say to ourselves on Long Island, like, what the heck are you going to do with this thing on Long Island, you know? But (laughs) just the strength, as he described what looked like 12-inch wide blows from a, a log, but there were no logs, there were no smudges from the bark, Right. No chips, nothing to indicate wood had been used. But think about the massive strength of a Bigfoot to just kind of in a rage pound down on this thing with its arms and forearms, uh, beating this thing to bejesus, and then ripping the winch out of the steel bumper. Yeah, that's ridiculous I, amount of strength. Now, now first of all, a, a, a Bigfoot doesn't know how to unlock uh, the winch to free spool no. the cable out. No. So how the heck you grab that and yank it and break it and then pull it out? I mean, you know. It, no, it's, it's thousands just, of pounds of uh, tension would be required. Yeah, like a, a another more massive truck yanking on it to break it, you know, and then roll it out, you know? Yeah, while the, while the other truck was tied to something. You know, it just doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. Wild encounter. But I do love the homage to Officer Harry Callahan, you know, naming, uh, naming his forty four Magnum handgun Harry. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting, you know, and if you remember the movie, you got to ask yourself, punk, 
<laughs> do I feel lucky? Right, the old, was it five or was it six? <laughs> In all the excitement, I kind of lost count myself. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Gotta love Harry. Yeah, that was good stuff, man. Cool, man. Hey, do you remember, was it the same movie? I think it was. Uh, where he went into the lunch lunch counter and uh, his perception was that something wasn't right, but he let nothing on of the sort. Yeah. Uh, he just sat down and told the waitress the usual. And w- the waitress looked at him and brought something out that was not the usual. Yeah, and she was kind of shaken, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he was just looking around, the coffee, you know, whatever was on the counter. And then he just stood up and started blowing the freaking crap out of those guys that were sitting in the booth, right? Yeah, yeah. That was good stuff. Yeah, I think he got reprimanded for that one, too. That was one of his reprimands. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, people today, you know, they think that was too violent or something, you know. They'd have something to say about it, not me. It's fun. Yeah, fun yeah. movie. Fun movie. So that's it, folks. Cool. Woo. Great account, Bill. Let's uh, we'll move on to a little bit of viewer mail, and uh, the first note comes in. Let's see here from Tracy. Tracy doesn't say where she is, but she says thank you so much for living in reality. Um, I have to. <laughs> here we are talking about all this crazy stuff, and she says, "Thank you for living in reality." So I have to read the second part of the sentence and urging others to get vaccinated. Uh, she she writes that she was getting her second dose next week, and I can't wait. I've worried that I'd catch COVID and die between now and next Thursday when I get the shot, and I'm sick and tired of worrying that I'll get sick. Thank you so much for encouraging others to get vaccinated. There you go, Tracy. You're on board with us. And in spite of the handful of people out there that are bitching and complaining or even telling us to shut up about the COVID, uh, no, we are doing the right thing as far as we are concerned. And we're encouraging others to do so as well. So thank you for listening, Tracy. And, uh, Stay with us. There's a lot more good things to come. Yeah. No, it's great, Tracy. And uh, I'm getting my second shot next Thursday, too. So you didn't say where you're from. Maybe I'll see you there, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good stuff. And then, uh, then we go down under for our next letter. And it's from Nick in Oz. Oz. And he says, good day, you two guys. Nick here in Oz. I first heard W.J. on his guest appearance on Sasquatch Chronicles and Into the Fray podcast. I always love the way you narrate the stories that you've collected. Was awesome to find out that you and your brother have your own podcast, and I've been listening to it since it started and continue to do so every Sunday. Your format of the show and the banter between you and your brother are great and easy to listen to. And he said, I know you guys are interested in Yowie. So he encouraged me to look into the Hickey's Falls encounter. So huh. I put that on the to-do list, to list because you do know that I love the Yowie. Oh, yeah. We got to check into that, Kev. Hickey's yeah. Falls. Yep. And um, 
he said, I believe in this story and I believe in this creature as I cannot discount all of the people that have seen one. Thanks again for the work you put into your podcast for us out here so that we can listen to it. Keep up the great work. All the best from Oz and the home of the Yahweh. Yahweh. P.S. I would ship myself if I saw one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ship with a P. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, that is fantastic, man. And it's really uh, gracious of you. to make comments about uh, the reading and the stories. And look, this is why I do it, right? This is why Kevin is on board with me now doing the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you, Nick, that based on the sheer immensity and the preponderance of those people who say they have seen or interacted with a Bigfoot, that I can come to no other conclusion other than that, the creature exists. And you just heard the first story that I put in my book, uh, Volume 1. Uh, and it was really because of the length and breadth of that story that I kind of trimmed things down a little bit uh, as I moved on. Because I didn't want the books to come off like uh, encyclopedias. I wanted them to be easy reads kind of get in and out like a magazine article uh so that's where it's at and uh we're really glad to have yep good stuff all right and our last uh note for today comes in from bob and bob wishes us a happy easter he writes the holiest of all days i wanted to wish You wish the both of you special thanks for your continued support for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the way you warn people of the evil that exists in the world. All things are possible through Christ. Thank you, Bob. Wow, that is a really nice little blurb. It is. And uh, again, I don't give a rat's patooey. (laughs) Who doesn't like what he just said? But that's really uh, spot on for the Easter season. Now, this this podcast is going to launch, what, Kev, a couple of weeks after Easter now, it right? It is, it is. But uh, I'm guessing he, by this time, listened to us. If you didn't hear our last podcast, 94, which had a little message right at the end, that said Happy Easter right at the very end, if you stuck yeah, all no, the way through it. Yeah, that's good stuff, you cool. know. All right, folks. Well, uh, keep the great reviews coming. We've been getting great five-star reviews. Uh, We need those five-star reviews because it's virtually the only means we have to attract new listeners to the podcast. And by getting new listeners, we're able to continue to increase the quality of the podcast and also keep it on that regular weekly schedule. So thank you so much, folks, and be safe. Yeah, and folks, you know what? Kevin and I, we don't discriminate against anybody. We're just laying it out there as we see it relative to Bigfoot and all of these other oddities going on. So bring it on. If you've seen something, say something. You can contact us at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and hit our contact link and uh, send us out what you've seen, any tips, anything like uh, Nick just did down in Oz. Uh, Any tips, send them our way, and we will do our best 
to investigate them and bring the stories to you. And by the way, should you find yourself stomping along in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.